If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I would encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, as we'll be looking at verse 8 through 22, which is the end of the chapter. Peter has concluded the section of his letter that encouraged Christians to display their freedom in submission for Christ's sake as citizens, servants, wives, and husbands. He encouraged them to bear unjust treatment as part of their calling. Now what follows in 1 Peter chapter 3 to the end of the chapter is not really a summary of what has been going on in chapter 2 up till chapter 3, verse 7, but it is a call to believers to action. And Peter argues that Christ also traveled the path from suffering to glory. Follow along as I read 1 Peter, verses 8 through 22. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or a reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and to do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But, in, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter starts our call to action back in verses 8 through 12 as 
to live a godly life. To live a godly life. Peter starts with the appropriate relationships should start in the community. And we see this by what is said of Peter's writing when it says, finally, all of you. How do we know that this is a community? Well, I believe that it, in the context of how he has said it, all of you, if he was addressing more individuals, he could say, each one of you. But he's bringing us together and knowing that the actions that we are going to be speaking of brings unity and togetherness in that community. And there are five characteristics of Christian life that bring blessing. Blessing is God's favor, but also it results in honoring God. This blessing will come to us. The key to all of this, the key to each one of these characteristics is our individual love of grace. They reflect the grace and love and the compassion of Christ himself. The teaching of Christ have become, have come through the apostles. This is a progression. Christ himself informed the apostles. The apostles then informed others, as Peter is doing in this letter. We are included in that as we see and understand through God's word. Peter reminds us that God always acts first. Before we can take any of these characteristics and be, bring them to ourselves and act on them, first, God had to call us. Not only has he called us to this actual behavior, but because of him drawing us to himself, we have even the ability to do this because apart from him, we would not. The five characteristics are unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and humility. Or as the text says, a humble mind. Unity of mind should be characterized by harmony with one another. I think about what would be unity of mind, and if you've ever seen those large flocks of birds that are moving together, there might be a hundred, there might be a thousand, and how do they know simultaneously all to move at the same time? I don't think that's really the, the unity of mind that we're talking about. I think that's instinct. Or the guy in the lead is the one that's got the map, and the rest of them are just following. But really, what we're talking about is that we should come together and think as one. We should have harmony not only in attitude, but also in understanding. And all of this comes from God's word. Also, sympathy, Peter says, to the exiles. And that doesn't just come when there is a loss and we are willing to be sympathetic towards somebody, but it actually is put into action. It should be sharing and be supportive of that individual, whatever that situation may be. We can come alongside them 
and help to carry that burden, whatever it is, physically, emotionally, but also brotherly love. This is spoken of so often in God's word among believers. This is how we should see and feel toward each other. It was the great commandment that Jesus himself said to love God first and then love others as yourself. As preparing this word today, I saw that some text would also use love as brothers. More of that sibling type of love. And if you have siblings, you know that can be a real challenge. I think brotherly love is closer. But if we want to use love like brothers, then we have to understand that it must be from the context of that we are adopted brothers and sisters of God the Heavenly Father. He has brought us together and made us family. But also have a tender heart, compassion. Paul would write, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. There again, tender-heartedness has to come about because of what God has done first. God in Christ has forgiven our sin. And be humble. Others are considered more important than oneself. Pride does not fill our hearts. Humility was scorned at this time in history. It was shown as a weakness. I happen to think that maybe that might align with our thoughts today in this society. We see pride of of what is accomplished as individuals. And I'm not anti-sports, but so many times we see in sports conduct how it shows and seems to be of such a prideful manner. But we should be the opposite of that. We should be humble. If verse 8, focus on relationships between fellow believers, I believe that verse 9 is focused on believers toward unbelievers. For it says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called, that you may obey, you, that you may obtain a blessing. We are talking about not reviling, not doing evil against evil. We're saying that the context is primar- probably primarily between Christians to non-Christians. But unfortunately, my friends, This can be symptoms of Christians to Christians also. It should not be, but it could be. But what should we do instead of repaying? We should bless. What does it mean to bless? Believers to ask God to show his favor and grace upon those who have inflicted hurt on us. And why should we do that? Why would we be willing to do that? We should do it as an outward expression of a changed heart by God's calling, God's great grace shown to us. 
this is not works for salvation. Peter has already taken care of that thought early on in his letter. In chapter 1, verse 3, he specifically says how faith is done and how conversion takes place. Also verse 23. And it also talks about the preservation of the saints in chapter 1, verse 5. But it should be an evidence of those that truly have a changed heart. Peter used an Old Testament scripture, Psalm 34, to support his statements. I believe that this may be one of those psalms that actually was used to help instruct early Christians. It might have been in their basic training. You need to know what Psalm 34 says, my friends, Peter might be saying, because it was as true the thousand years before that it was written as it is today. And what did it say? That we were to love life and see good days. Let him turn from evil to do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What does it mean to see good days? Well, in today's standards, if we were putting together a TV commercial to show what good days are all about, it may start at a lodge. Fishing buddies got together. They've had a good catch of the day. The sponsor of this time, who is advocating the use of their beverage, is saying, it's cold, life is good. This is what good days are all about. And the commercial might drift off, knowing that that's what a good day is all about. But I don't think that that's what God's word tells us, maybe for a good day of Christians. I think I would rather talk about Paul and Silas, Silas in Acts 16. What happened there? They were preaching God's word. They were brought before the council. They were beaten. Their backs were bloody. They were thrown in prison. Their legs were shackled to a wall. And there they were. But at midnight, loudly singing and proclaiming the goodness of God, singing psalms and praising God, maybe even using this psalm itself, that was their good day. And even in the midst of suffering, they knew that a good and gracious God was worth their praise. Peter now moves to the issue that is central for the rest of the letter, the issue of Christian suffering. He has shown how the Lord God turns the problem upside down. Christians are not free from 
seeing, seeking vindication and are filled with humility as heirs of grace. Suffering has become an opportunity to meet evil with good and cursing with blessing. And that next opportunity is the opportunity to witness. First of all, in word, verses 13 through 15. That witnessing word, the verses go like this. Who can harm you? A question, but there isn't the answer there. But we know from the rest of Scripture, who can harm us for doing that witnessing? No one can harm believers on the day of judgment. God will reward them for their faithfulness. Suffering will follow believers as long as this age continues, but not at the judgment day. Paul would say in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? But if we suffer because of our right standing before God, our blessings remain unchanged. The blessing is the assurance of eternal life. So we should not fear man. We should not fear for what he can do to us but we also should not fear him enough that we are not willing to witness. I believe that the second in today's society is more prevalent than the first. I believe that we do not witness because we are are afraid of retaliation or harm coming to us. I think that we do not witness because we fear the rejection coming from individuals or that it will be awkward at the situation or that it might be just a little too church-like for the environment that we're in but we surrender to that fear of God, fear of man we should witness with the same nature that was spoken of earlier and that is gentleness and respect any opportunity that is given to us to proclaim the truth of who God is, we should remember the state that we were once in also. Peter's great point to the exiles at this time, what they should be witnessing to is that Jesus, this same Jesus that not that many years earlier was put on a cross and killed, is Lord of their lives. That's revolutionary. That's unbelievable that in that time, they would say that this Jesus was the God that they serve and follow completely. Our witness should be no different. We should speak boldly boldly of Christ being Lord of our life. I would think if I wanted to give a personal testimony of a witness, unfortunately, too easily, pride would come into it. So I go back to Acts 16. After they had been singing, 
the jail actually shook. Doors came open. They could be released if they wanted to be. The jailer was afraid for his life. But Paul and Silas said to him, don't fear, we're not going anyplace. And he said, what do I need to know to be saved? And they openly and confidently spoke the gospel of Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of his life. And he accepted that. But we also should witness in actions our conduct. Verses 16 and 17. Bold words do honor God, but if our actions do not show and reflect that, they will be lost to this world that we witness to. Why does Peter relate our actions to our conscience? I read verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Conscience has been defined as a person's inner awareness of moral quality of his actions. Pagans may just make it out to be inner awareness of behavior. But God's word clearly says the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of believers brings his conscience before God with radical results. It is informed and reshaped by the light of God's righteousness. His will, his nature, is then in our heart, changing our heart, giving us the ability to have outward showing of how we have been changed. But also a clear conscience can justify sinners for bold action. We no longer have to doubt whether that sin has been removed from us. We do not have to worry about our past life. We have the confidence to know that Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has changed our lives and this makes it also in action. But also it gives us the stamina and the faithfulness to be a good Christian witness. Back to Acts 16. In action, I said they could have left. They could have gone free. But they chose to stay in the midst of the situation they were willing to take whatever consequences were willing to come along, but they would not be disrespectful to the authorities that were there, that had placed them there until the time that God would remove them if it was his will. But I think we also have to understand as we close on this segment of thought is Paul says, yes, there will be suffering, but he, I'm sorry, Peter says that there will be suffering, but he is not calling us and telling us to seek it out. 
I have said through the truth of God's word, Peter encourages us to live godly lives and has instructed us to have open opportunity to witness. And lastly, in verses 18 through 22, Peter tells us of Christ's suffering as the pathway to exaltation. Whose pathway to exaltation? I believe the scripture tells of Jesus's and the exiles, which is the believers in Jesus, exaltation. But both his and theirs being lifted up were secured by his saving work, Christ alone. There is nothing we can do to receive the righteousness of God. It, it already has been done by the work of Christ. Peter wants to remind us of the exclusiveness of Christ's suffering. If we look at verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered. I think that we have to understand that particular phrase before we can go forward. For Christ also suffered. It would be very easy to use that also to want to include ourselves or that Peter is making reference then to believers, the exiles, to be part of this suffering. That's not what this is saying. First of all, the word suffering there, yes, there is a connection to believers' suffering, but it really is Christ's death. His suffering went to the point of death. I think the also then means not only did he suffer physically, but also it speaks of his death. And those parts that are exclusive to Christ's suffering, to his death, are once for sins. My friends, if there was one thing in studying this scripture that really spoke to me the most, it's this brief, short statement. Once for sins. The exclusiveness of what God has accomplished through Christ's death. An atonement for sins only had to be done one time, and it could only be done by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Nothing else has to be done. We cannot add to it. We cannot take it away, take anything away. And we, if we think about that and how important that is, and then understand that through centuries of time in the church, that statement was actually removed. It was compromised until the central part of a time together in worship was a bloodless sacrifice of Christ again in what was called the Lord's meal, where he is again offered for that atoning work that he had done once on the cross. The reformers got to a point they could no longer keep quiet. They had to say, this is not what God's word says. Grace is not imparted to us by re-sacrificing Christ. 
And they stood their ground and said that it's in faith alone through Christ alone. And part of what really spoke to me about this passage is that we as individuals living in this area are faced with this many times when we witness. That we might start a conversation with somebody and say, are you a believer in Christ? And their answer would be, I'm Catholic. And we think to ourselves, what does that say? What does that mean? I don't know for sure. I believe what it says is that that individual being very sincere is telling exactly the reflection of their heart and that they know what the church has said to them, but not necessarily what God's word has said. Vatican II has affirmed that still to this day, this bloodless sacrifice goes on because it must be there to impart grace to the individual. No, it's once for sin. But also, righteous for the unrighteous. The one that has come into this world and led a perfect life, the righteous, has given up his life and has been willing to pay the debt for the unrighteous. Only Christ can do that. Completely exclusive to him. Only Christ and his death, his suffering, is the one that brings us to God. No one can come to the Father but by me. Jesus himself has said, I will, if you see me, you see my Father. We also are reminded his earthly human body was exposed to death but brought back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're trying to understand Peter's telling us of Christ's suffering leading to his exaltation. And now we come to the verses, verses 19 through 22. Christ's suffering to exaltation. And in my study, I found this again to be a roadblock, to be hard to understand. Martin Luther himself would write about this specific piece of scripture. He would say, a wonderful text is this in a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. And I'm studying God's word. I'm reading from learned men. And they are saying this is one of the hardest things to understand. And what exactly are we talking about? This particular scripture, verse 19. 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers and having been subjected to him. And the questions were there. What did they mean by proclaiming? What is meant by spirits in prison? Why were they talking about back in Noah's days, about being in the ark? Why was it about being restored then before God, the angels and the authorities? And that it was a point of contention in different views over and over and over. To the point that if Martin Luther said he did not necessarily understand all of this, that has to be one of those points that we will not completely know and understand. Proclamation. I can say from what I have read, he, Christ is not proclaiming the gospel message to fallen saints. These fallen saints are that. They are not believers. What realm are they in? They are under his subjective power. All the answers are not there. But what we do know and what I do understand from this and other pieces of scripture is exactly this statement that I have put together. Jesus' death and resurrection is seen by God, the Father, as the one and only acceptable atonement for the sin of man. He has completed complete victory over death, the grave, all authorities, all powers, angels, fallen and heavenly hosts. Jesus has returned to his rightful place of glory at the right hand of God the Father. But also then we have to come and understand verse 21, which says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how do we understand what it is talking about in relationship to baptism? We can back up and we try and understand about talking about Noah and the ark and being prepared and that eight persons were brought to safety through water. Is it that the water is part of baptism? So that's connection. We do know and understand that in the day of Noah, the obedient servant was willing to take a hundred years to build an ark, that when the flood came, that water would pass judgment on a people that were wicked and evil, causing their death. But at the same time, the same water that would bring judgment to those that would apart from God's will would also bring salvation or being saved through the ark being lifted up. 
Apart from that, how close are all of these things together? I don't understand completely. But again, I do know through what this scripture says and the entirety of God's word, because of that, and what I mean by because of that, what Christ has done in the previous statement that I read, we also will be raised to a new life in eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us to take, to take great hope and a good conscience also in baptism. The act of baptism is a visible sign of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection raised out of the water to newness of life. Christians need never fear their enemies. Their concern must rather be to live a good conscience, a life that honors and glorifies their Lord and Savior. Peter has been giving encouragement to the exiles because suffering will occur in their lives and the life of Christ is their hope and their strength. But their blessing comes to them also through faith in Christ and his resurrection. His atoning work need only be completed once. The reformers knew this truth and could no longer be silent. They were willing to face whatever suffering would come about for their conviction of righteousness, which they knew came from grace alone and faith alone. We also today can do no other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rest on the completed work of Christ Jesus. That Christ himself was restored to glory. That through faith we are restored to you. Peter again would continue to equip the exiles for a life in a sinful world that would reject the one true God, that pain and suffering would come about, Lord, because they professed you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that we would understand and see that our fate may be no different, but our strength, our faith, comes from you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Continue to draw us closer to yourself, that we may give you honor and glory through not only the words of our mouth, but also the actions of our lives, that we may be bold witnesses of you in a world of darkness. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. <laughs>